How can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership of commons, the air, soils, water, biological diversity, back to the diversity is as critical as biological diversity. In this epic struggle to preserve a habitable that is the only thing which is sustained. The place that you love is now under siege. Deregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet. These are system problems. Our humanity is We shouldn't state. ask whether we can survive These are existential questions not. as much as they are systemic questions. Action informed by knowledge of get down place. To work. You're listening to the Schumacher Lectures, a channel hosted by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. The Schumacher Lectures feature speakers who challenge entrenched ways of thinking while exploring how to build a new economy that serves both people and the planet. As the peasants are in a struggle of survival, these giant corporations are also in a struggle for survival. But of a very different kind. Their survival means they must increasingly grow bigger to survive. Presented in the Adjusting to Globalization, the Problem of Production series, Wes Jackson delivered a speech, Becoming Native to This Place, on October 23rd of 1993. Let's have a look at it. Uh, I have a Schumacher story. In March of 1977, uh, Fritz Schumacher uh, came to Kansas. Remember, he died in August of 77. We had just started the Land Institute the previous um, uh, September. And six weeks after we began, our building burned down with all the books and tools, and I'd resigned my position in California, and all my retirement was uh, had gone up in flames, and there was really no reason to keep going, except that we had some ideas, and all the best recycled materials uh, had now uh, gone to heaven. And it was... Um, saying that because it was a good building. And uh, uh, Schumacher came in uh, in, 70, in March, and we were rebuilding with scrap, and uh, we have pictures of him around there. And we had a public lecture in Salina that night, Salina, Kansas. But he told a story about coming across the United States with some German friends at the height of the Great Depression. Uh, I think it's about 35 or 36. And he stopped along the way near Salina in a small town and said, uh, uh, stop for gas, and said, well, how are things? Uh, asked a fellow that was there. He says, well, they're all right. Uh, well, what do you do? Schumacher asked him. He says, well, I work for that, on that farm right over there. Um, oh, well, that's interesting. You're a farmer, yes. Um, in fact, uh, I work for the man that used to work for me. Uh, he, uh, I didn't have any money to pay him, so I paid him in land. And now he owns my farm. And... Schumacher says, well, that's a very sad story. He says, oh, no, he doesn't have any money either, so he's paying me back in land. (laughs) Well, I like that story because at a very basic level, if we would ever come to our senses, all we have to do is figure out a way to stay amused while we live till we die cheap inexpensively to the life support system. It's what I call the mill around theory of civilization, that if we can figure out a way to mill around and not hurt much. Uh, in other words, how do we quit? How do we learn to quit doing uh, is really the problem. And uh, how do we make our vessel so small that it doesn't take much to fill it? Uh, that's a journey. And I have a, a, a friend that uh, Leland gets by on $500 a year. And uh, he lives in a 6 by 16 foot shack. He's been doing this for 25 years. He's more important to me than Thoreau in that sense. And um, 
his idea is that we start doing violence to people in the landscape when we start seeking pleasure. He says there's nothing wrong with the experience of pleasure. But when you start seeking pleasure, that's when the violence happens. And he says, in my intellectual pursuits, that's kind of pleasure-seeking that creates a kind of violence. Um, he's very careful to not be judgmental. But he even had the most beautiful garden. He quit growing a garden because he said that, too, was a form of pleasure-seeking. And now he just harvests the greens that are around in the yard. Um, he went and took Social Security out because his wife, who lives in the house, he lives in the shack 100 yards away, uh, she felt she needed $300 a month uh, to live. He could get 400 from Social Security. She could get 200 She needed 300 So he had $300 that was piling up in the bank, and that was causing him to have creative thoughts and start doing violence again. So he scratched his name off Social Security and says he's now a free man again. So uh, there's another, there are other ways to think about going in the world, and Leland is important to me because he's the most bottom-line person I know, and it makes you pretty impatient with people that say, we just can't make it, uh, and then you look around. Well, that's not what I came to talk about. Uh, what I came to talk about uh, is becoming native to this place, meaning this continent. Um, I can do no better than to quote our friend Wendell Berry uh, in the unsettling of America. You'll remember, most of you, he said, that we came with vision but not with sight. We came with visions of former places to this continent, but not the sight to see where we are. And as we came across the continent, cutting the forests and plowing the prairies, we've never known what we were doing because we've never known what we were undoing. Uh, Dan Luton, the geographer at Berkeley, in a paper 25 years ago, said that we came poor people to a seemingly empty land that was rich in resources, and based on that perception of reality, we're not talking about the reality, but that perception of reality, poor people, seemingly empty land, rich, we build our institutions, um, political, educational, economic, religious. We build our institutions for that perception of reality and now we've become rich people in an increasingly poor land that's building up and the old institutions don't hold. And so here we are, we give them a patch them up, give them a lick and a promise, uh, and things don't quite work. Well, standing behind that perception of reality, of course, is the consequence of the conquerors. Um, Kurt Sale has said it very well in The Conquest of Paradise, uh, a book I greatly enjoyed. Um, there, of course, was 1492 and all that, and uh, the gold of Mexico and the gold of Peru, and being Christians, thinking uh, things had to come in threes, uh, there had to be gold somewhere else. Um, it's, a, it's a holy idea. And uh, so Coronado, um, uh, hanging out down in Mexico, married to the daughter of the bastard son of the king of Spain. I think I have that right. Had a little money. And uh, uh, there were a bunch of... Uh, of second sons out of Spain that were very interested in finding that third uh, hunk of gold. And so Coronado in 1541 started northward from Compostilla to uh, the Culiacan and up the Culiacan Valley into an area between New Mexico and Arizona looking for uh, the seven cities of Cibola. Now, seven also is a sacred number, 
Um, and you know how that one comes out is sacred. We got seven holes in their head, and uh, you got to take your cues wherever you can find them uh, to know what counts. And so the seven cities of Cibola, no matter there are only six uh, that were up there, they were told that there was gold there. So off they went, a thousand horses and mules, a whole bunch of sheep, a bunch of Indians uh, to go along and carry the baggage, uh, I think 300 Spaniards on horseback, it must have been quite a contingent, and they made it all the way up there, and sure enough, they're just a bunch of Pueblo Indians, no gold, they get in a fight, and get pretty beat up, but... Uh, <clears throat> These Pueblo Indians have a slave by the name of, well, they call him El Turco because he looked like a Turk to these Spaniards. Uh, he had been a slave that had been captured, I don't know where, but his people were the Harahe that had come from either southeastern Nebraska or northeastern Kansas, somewhere in that area. And this poor slave was homesick. He wanted to get home. So he said, well, look, there isn't any gold here, but I tell you, there's gold up in Quivera. Uh, and uh, the kingdom of Quivera uh, is up about, well, the easternmost part of it is about 18 miles south of where I live uh, in Kansas. So um, Coronado and his men, they lit out toward the plains of Texas. They got over to uh, the Olana Estacado. They ran into that deep chasm there the Turk is still telling them no no north and east of here this is where the gold is so um, they think what the heck so Coronado well that's, that's a free translation uh, Coronado says uh, uh, he picks 30 men to go with him now mind you all these young Spaniards from the finest families in Europe uh most of them are in their 20s. The discoverer of the Grand Canyon's 22. Uh, this uh, uh, Coronado himself, I think, was barely 30. Uh, so these were young adventurers. And uh, so the Turk convinces them to take off. He picks his 30 men, sends the rest of them back to the Taigu Pueblo, which is on the line between New Mexico and Arizona, the Zuni Reservation today. And he goes according to uh, the historian, Armelio, that was along with him, northward by the needle, which is to say the north and east by the needle. And they finally uh, come into Kansas, what is now Kansas. They reach the kingdom of Quivera, and what do they find? Houses made of sticks and straw, no gold, people that some of them measured as high as six feet eight inches. Chief Tatarax came in. He was uh, summoned by Coronado. He had, the only metal he had was a copper ring around either his neck or wrist. And uh, so here they are, frustrated, out of sorts, and Coronado's men convince him finally that they should strangle the Turk. So they put a rope around his neck, put in a stick, and they garret him. So the first murder of a native in the central part uh, of the continent happened about 18 miles south of where I live. Uh, maybe it's, there's some doubt it could be another 40 miles beyond. Point is, at that particular time, DeSoto's over on the Mississippi building barges and had those two men uh, and their armies marched toward one another seven days they would have met as it was it was 300 years before that area was filled in 300 years now <clears throat> what happened of course after settlement here were the conquerors, and then the settlers. The conquerors found natives. The settlers, as Wendell says in the unsettling, designated them as redskins, surplus people. 
Now, I know my Methodism is going to come through. I haven't been to church in 20 years, but uh, there's something there. Uh, that is a sin that we never atone for. By the designation of redskins and thereby surplus people, the great-great-grandsons and daughters of those settlers became the new redskins. As small towns and rural communities dried up, we now have only 1.9% of the U.S. population on farms. The new redskins have about been exterminated and now we are all candidates for redskin hood all of us because we never really came to terms with what that meant that is the institutions uh, the system of laws the justifications that made this all possible well come forward now from that period of the redskins uh, to the settlement and now we have in 1776 of course the mind of Thomas Jefferson uh, who is carrying the imagery of the pastoral landscape and the small towns and communities out of Europe and Jefferson has this idea that nature combined with farming carried with it a certain sort of virtue, an inherent virtue that would inform this new chance on the earth. And so we have then the Jeffersonian ideal of the small town and rural community. Jefferson, a product of the Enlightenment. Jefferson believing in rationalism, giving us the grid. Jefferson irritated that the Great Lakes were in the way and that they couldn't just draw a straight line across. Uh, Jefferson uh, irritated about the way rivers are positioned. The Mississippi was far too wiggly. It should have been straight. The rational mind of Jefferson uh, and uh, the system of laws and so on. Now what I want to do for the next few minutes is contrast an experience that I had on a ranch in South Dakota uh, one summer with another, the other experience I had growing up on a farm in the Kansas River Valley and I want to illustrate, I'll illustrate later or explain later why that contrast. The summer I was 15, going on 16, I abandoned myself to the prairies of South Dakota um, to work on a ranch belonging to an eccentric and childless first cousin of my mother and her Swedish immigrant husband, Andrew. Ina was Andrew's second wife. His first had been her sister, Bertha. Andrew and Bertha homesteaded one half section and Ina another. When Bertha died, Andrew and Ina married and joined their holdings. Now this was near the Rosebud Indian Reservation and on Sundays I sometimes rode with half-breed kids over those prairies hearing such stories as to how their Indian grandfather had trapped eagles on this hill or that. Andrew, Ina and I would go to White River on Saturday afternoon and these Rosebud Sioux would lie in the shade of the stores and as the sun moved they'd pick up their belongings and move to the shade on the other side. And out on the ranch, I'd hear Andrew cuss and swear about how the Indians never did anything with the land. In town, the very Indian from whom Andrew and Ina were leasing Indian land had once again charged groceries to their account. Andrew always paid for to fail meant that a neighboring rancher would be only too willing to lease the same land next year, perhaps forgetting that he too would be trapped into buying a bottle of whiskey at the liquor store, forgetting that he too would have to tolerate coming upon what is left of one of his steers butchered by the same redskins. 
Well, I fell in love that first summer at a Saturday night dance. She was a beautiful white girl then, and her magic so overwhelming that I swear I failed to sleep the entire night after I met her. Thirty-five years later when I saw her, she was seriously overweight, had lost most of her teeth, her slip was showing, and she neither recognized nor remembered me as she lugged one of her grandchildren into the bar. I think it was the same bar where as a teenager I learned more interesting content at low tuition than any time before or since. <clears throat> For it was here that I had scrutinized with the civilized eye of a Kansas River Valley Methodist, drunk cowboys, married or not, who hugged and smooched young natives, and from time to time disappeared into the shadows of the back and dusty streets of White River. The landscape was mostly unplowed and still is. The horse was central to that way of life then, less so now. And out on the ranch, besides the moon and the stars, the only lights were of Murdo and Okaton across the river, 12 to 15 miles distant. It was a summer of branding, castrating, fence-fixing, dens of, dens of rattlesnakes to discover, pond bass to catch. And many evenings on the ranch, I'd drive out on the point in a Cadillac coupe or the pickup to shoot prairie dogs or to see the 100 head of horses in the bottoms or out on the range. Junk horses, Ina called them. For in the dry 30s, she had pumped water for hours for the cattle only to have 50 to 100 head of Andrew's horses show up, run the cattle away, and drink all the water. Andrew justified keeping these mostly wild creatures around on the grounds that it was horse trading that had made it possible for him to be so solidly positioned. I lived in a small wooden hillside shack set upon steel wheels, a shack Andrew had bought from Millette County, which used it to house the county road crew. It had been pulled by horses, perhaps the same horses used to pull the greater blade. Andrew and Ina lived in a small two-room house with a large attic which bowed from the weight of such old magazines as Life, the Saturday Evening Post, and Ina's true stories about romance. Some evenings, Andrew and I would sit on his porch, which overlooked the White River a half mile away. Andrew would cuss Roosevelt, the Yalta Conference, Indians, neighbors, everybody but Ike, the president, who happened to be Ina's first cousin, or I suspect Ike would have caught it too. There was no electricity, only cistern water, which was used at least twice. The last time always to water a small backyard garden or the chickens. And with Ina on her buckskin dicky, me on Bonnie or Violet, the names of two girls back home, we rode the range from one dam to another where poles were kept with lures so we might catch some bass on the way home. Or we might go to the abandoned school on the school section for some cottonseed cake to distribute somewhere across the nearly 4,000 uh, acres of paradise. I didn't want to go home, and had it not been for high school football in September, I might have stayed. The place became my American dream. And looking back, even though Jefferson and Lewis and Clark's Missouri was downstream on the white some 50 miles away. I now see that little of Jefferson's vision was there beyond the section lines and the system of laws. Here, his vision of the family farm must have been predicated upon 30 inches of moisture or more per year. Here, the land determined. No yeoman farmer existed. Even so, I loved everything about it. The Indians, the rodeos, the Danish and Swedish immigrants delighted with their land holdings, the rattlesnakes, even the colorful prejudice, and how the natives got a little bit even with the butchered steer, the grocery bill, and the whiskey. Now in the Kansas River Valley, it had been another story. 
We were farmers there. Hoeing was endless during the summer, what with watermelons, sweet potatoes, cantaloupes, strawberries, peonies, flocks, sweet corn, potatoes, tomatoes, rhubarb, asparagus, and so forth. It was a relief to put up alfalfa hay or harvest wheat, rye, corn. My dad won the county corn growing contest at least three years. Our farm and market was along Highway 24 and 40, the Pacific Highway, a subconscious naming, I suppose, because the nation looked westward. Six children were born to my parents. I was the last in 1936, a sister the first born in 1914. Dad was 50 that year, my mother 42. They were agrarians, fiercely so I see now, Jeffersonians. They were also Methodists and Congregationalists. Don't waste time, motion, or steps. Don't drink pop, alcohol in any form, or eat out. Now the contrast between that truck farm and the South Dakota ranch was striking. The row crops require cultivating and hoeing, sweat of the brow, good manners, and quotable scripture went together. And in that market with people stopping coast to coast, I now sense that we were countrymen then in a way that we are not now. No bad jokes about either California or New Jersey then. We all inquired into one another's well-being. Here was agriculture, row crop variety, of course, that I knew and I will say loved in a certain restricted sense, but it did not compare to the life of the range with the juxtaposition of natives and grassland, ranchers and rodeos. I made up my mind I'd have that South Dakota ranch one day or one like it. But Andrew died of prostate cancer, and Ina died of injuries sustained in the pickup she was driving. The ranch was sold, and the money willed to one of Ina's nephews, who within a year paid it all out in a lawsuit due to being at fault in a car wreck. Football and love kept me in college in what must have been one of the most misspent youths in history. And what smoldered were two experiences with the land. The Jefferson Agrarian, where sod had been busted, and the cattleman. I preferred the latter. My great-grandfather entered Kansas the first day it was legal, May 30, 1854 the day the Kansas-Nebraska Act was ratified. 26 years old, he had already been to San Francisco by way of Panama. 50 miles into Kansas, he broke tall grass prairie sod and set right out to farming his 160 acres, Jefferson style, interrupting normal life to fight against pro-slavery forces with John Brown at Blackjack Creek on the Santa Fe Trail in 1857. But a man who was to become his son-in-law, one of my grandfathers, arrived in Kansas in 1877 with $300 one day before turning 22. He felt lucky not to have put his money in the bank for it closed the next day. He thus preserved his grub stake and threw himself out onto the Flint Hills grassland of Kansas to run cattle on more or less free grass. By the end of 10 years, he had enough to go half and half with a partner and purchase 160 acres of sandy loam in the Kansas River Valley on the second bench, thereby assured of no more than a flood or two per century. In five years, he had bought his partner out. Well, I was born on that farm, loved those soils, loved to plow them, loved to smell them. And I've wondered why that grandfather, when the grass had been so good to him, would give up his cattle to farm. And I think I know. He had come from the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, a Virginian, an agrarian. He was likely an unconscious Jeffersonian. He played the role, and he played it well, for he was a well-off man when he died in 1925. As a school board member, he convinced his neighbors that the new school should be completely paid for in the year it was built. 
It was a fine, well-built school, two rooms for eight grades. My mother and I both went there. But how could the community pay such a debt so quickly? I can't speak for the neighbors. I know that Granddad never expanded his income by expanding his acreage. Though it was said of him, no matter whatever he did, things turned out right. I suspect that the reason that this was true comes from an offhand statement made by my mother once. She said that he'd lean on his scoop shovel for a half hour or more watching his hogs eat the ear corn, or lean against the barn door to watch them eat the soaked oats or boiled potatoes or whatever he had raised. As much as the times, it was a combination of joy, sympathy, art, and love rolled into one and tuned to the demands of his place. Well, here was the Jeffersonian dream. As imperfect as it was at its high watermark, the actuality or reality of that dream has been compromised and in decline ever since, since World War II at dazzling speed. In fact, now it seems as if the Jeffersonian dream is like what Leopold said about conservation, a bird which flies faster than the shot we aim at it. I won't recount further evidence that the Jeffersonian ideal is receding. That is simply a matter of going through the checklist of environmental and social problems and the irrational patterns of current settlement, nor will I even attempt an analysis as to why. But the question is, how do we reconcile these two situations on the prairies, scarcely one day's drive apart at the modern speed limit, and what is the lesson to be learned for future land use? Well, I think we need to recognize the reality of the ecological mosaic across the country and to realize there are places in which land determines, such as that South Dakota ranch and other places where the human can actually do more, where you have a salubrious or a benefic environment. Well, what I want to do now, though, is talk about what the situation is all the way from Oklahoma to Saskatchewan, from um, east of Denver, deep into the Midwest. What we have now are thousands of small towns and rural communities that are dying. Thousands of them, schools being closed, churches being closed. And what we have here is now the consequence of what Wendell Berry talked about in the unsettling of America with the double meaning there. The unsettling, the loss of the people from the small towns and rural communities has now led to an unsettling of the culture at large. Here we find ourselves with a rising crime rate, increasing national debt, increase in soil erosion, increase in chemical contamination of the countryside, and now we have to face it that the reward for destroyed communion is power. Power over nature, power over the indigenous, power over the constantly newly emerging redskins. And so it seems to me that rather than to look to Washington, it's better to start thinking small is beautiful. And what I think that means, and I'm hoping this is what it means, that we can introduce a second major into our universities and colleges. Right now there's only one major. It's upward mobility. It's the, it's the major that accommodates the original set of assumptions that uh, we settled the continent with. And so the major would be homecoming, where we would educate people to go back to a place and to dig in. And what I want to talk about now is a possibility of a new generation of settlers. Uh, people who could go into these places and 
not with the same mindset of those that settled in the first place. Those, that was a mindset that fueled the extractive economy, but with a mindset that is fundamentally different, a mindset in which they have developed the skills for what we might call ecological community accounting, where they ask the questions as to how do you set up the books for such accounting? And here we have examples of possibilities, technological possibilities as well as idealistic uh, notions that come from the likes of the new alchemists who inspired our work at the Land Institute years ago, John and Nancy Todd and their cohorts, the Rocky Mountain Institute with Amory Lovins, all the little places, David Orr uh, at, at the Meadow Creek Project and so on. And the thing that is so frightening about it all is how fragile all of these organizations are and how terribly underfunded they are. So fragile that it doesn't take much more than a blip before some of them go out or are threatened to go out. But we have a project now at the Land Institute at a little town called Matfield Green. And I want to talk about that as sort of a prototype of what we of a way to begin to think about it. Chase County, Kansas. Population, 3,000. The book, Prairie Earth, written by William Least Heat Moon, is about that county. The county has one stoplight. It's a blinker light, so you don't want to be slowed down too much. Uh, uh, Chase County, Kansas, 85% of this county has never been plowed. And in this county is a little town called Matfield Green. And Matfield Green, I visited Matfield Green in England a year or two ago. Uh, Matfield Green it has a population of 50. It's a town that uh, doesn't have a lifestyle. It's too small. Uh, it's down to the basics. Uh, a half-time uh, post office, a church that will have 8 to 15 people per Sunday, and uh, a beer joint. Those are the basics that uh, are left. Now, uh, in that town, I've managed to purchase several buildings. We went together and bought the school for 10,000, it's 10,000 square feet. Five of us bought it and then uh, uh, gave it to the Land Institute. We paid $5,000. Uh, the gym, we paid $4,000. Uh, my nephew bought the bank for $500. The, I bought the lumber yard for 1000 The um, hardware store we bought for um, um, 6000 and renovated. I have some interns there. Uh, we, uh, I bought several houses for $1,000 or under, one of them for $350. Now, these are not what you call um, top-of-the-line uh, uh, houses, but the, what we've done is to start putting roofs on things on these buildings. The stud walls uh, rotting. Uh, where the nails go into the sill plate, we stop that, we scab in. The house that I'm living in there part-time, uh, with all of the, um, uh, with a refrigerator, a stove, everything in that house, uh, including purchase price, has cost me less than $17,000. And the average homeless person now in New York City is costing the city of New York $17,000. There are people in that town living for seven $7,000 a year. Uh, so uh, what I want to do is describe some of that work there, and in particular, to close, at work on my houses in Matfield Green, I've had great fun tearing off the porches and cleaning up the yards. But it's been sad as well going through the abandoned belongings of families who lived out their lives in this beautiful, well-watered, fertile setting, 33 inches, or, yeah, 33 inches of rainfall there. In an upstairs bedroom, I came across a dusty but beautiful blue padded box labeled Old Programs New Century Club. Most of the programs from 1923 to 1964 were there. 
listed the officers. The club flower, the sweet pea, the club colors, pink and white, and the club motto, just be glad. <laughs> now the programs for each year were gathered under one cover and nearly always dedicated to some local woman who was special in some way. Each month the women were to comment on such subjects as canning, jokes, memory gems, a magazine article, guest poems, flower culture, misused words, birds, and so on. The May 1936 program was a debate, resolved, that movies are detrimental to the young generation. In August 1936, the program was dedicated to coping with the heat. Roll call was hot weather drinks. Next, some suggestions came, suggestions for hot weather lunches. A Mrs. Rogler offered ways of keeping cool. The June roll call in 1929 was the disease I fear most. Now that was 11 years after the great flu epidemic. Children were still dying in those days of diphtheria, whooping cough, scarlet fever, pneumonia. And on August 20, the roll call question was, what do you consider the most essential to good citizenship? In September that year, it was birds of our country. And the program was on the morning dove. Well, what became of it all? From 1923 to 1930, the program covers were beautiful, done at a print shop. From 1930 until 37, the effects of the depression are apparent. Programs were either typed or mimeographed and had no cover. The programs for two years are now missing, and in 1940, the covers reappeared, this time typed on construction paper. The print shop printing never came back. The last box in the program was in 1964. I don't know the last year Mrs. Florence Johnson attended the club. I do know that Mrs. Johnson and her husband, Turk, celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, for in the same box are some beautiful white 50th anniversary napkins with golden bells and the names Florence and Turk between the years 1920 and 1970. A neighbor told me Mrs. Johnson died in 81. The high school had closed in 67. The lumber yard and hardware store closed about the same time, but no one knows for sure. The last gas station went after that. But back to those programs. The motto never changed. The sweet pea kept it standing. So did the pink and white club colors. And the club collect which follows, persisted month after month, year after year. And that is called a collect for club women. Keep us, O oh God, from pettiness. Let us be large in thought, in word, in deed. Let us be done with fault-finding and leave off self-seeking. May we put away all pretense and meet each other face to face, without self-pity and without prejudice. May we never be hasty in judgment and always generous. Let us take time for all things. Make us grow calm, serene, gentle. Teach us to put into action our better impulses, straightforward and unafraid. Grant that we may realize it is the little things that create differences, that in the big things of life we are as one. And may we strive to touch and to know the great common woman's heart of us all. And, O oh Lord God, let us not forget to be kind. By modern standards, these people were poor. There was a kind of naivete among these relatively unschooled women. Some of their poetry in those programs was not good. Some of their ideas about the way the world works seem silly. 
Some of their club programs don't sound very interesting. Some sound tedious. But their monthly agendas were filled with decency, with efforts to learn about everything from the, from the birds to our government, and with coping with their problems, the weather diseases. And here is the irony. These women were living up to a far broader spectrum of their potential than most of us today. Now, I'm not suggesting we go back to 1923 or even to 1964, but I will say that those people in that particular generation in places like Matfield Green were farther along in the necessary journey to become native to their places, even as they were losing ground than we are today. So we have to ask, why was their life so vulnerable to the industrial economy, to the extractive economy? And what can we do to protect such attempts to be good and decent and to live our modest, out modest lives responsibly? I think this has to be the question that we put on the table. I know that there are going to be problems that have to do with the fact that there are not the cultural accoutrements, the music, the dance, the art, and so on. But in order to deal with that, I want to quote from Wallace Stegner out of Wolf Willow. Wallace Stegner, who recently died, the Stanford uh, uh, man of letters and historian, Western historian, and and, and uh, one of Wendell Berry's teachers, one of his most important teachers, Wallace Stegner said this. He had grown up in South Saskatchewan, uh, east of the Cy Cypress Hills, part of his youth there, I should say, a little town called East End, in what was called the White Mud, the Frenchman River. Stegner says this. Once in a self-pitying frame of mind, I was comparing my background with that of an English novelist friend where he had been brought up in London, taken from the age of four onward to the Tate and the National Gallery, sent traveling on the continent in every school holiday, taught French and German and Italian, given access to bookstores, libraries, and British museums, made familiar from infancy on with the conversation of the eloquent and the great, I had grown up in this dung-heeled sagebrush town on the disappearing edge of nowhere, utterly without painting, without sculpture, without architecture, almost without music or theater, without conversation or languages or travel or stimulating instruction, without libraries or museums or bookstores, almost without books. I was charged with getting in a single lifetime from scratch what some people inherit as naturally as they breathe air. How, I asked this Englishman, could anyone from so deprived a background ever catch up? How was one expected to compete as a cultivated man with people like himself? He looked at me and said dryly, perhaps you got something else in place of all that. He meant, I suppose, that there are certain advantages to growing up a sensuous little savage. <clears throat> and to tell the truth, I'm not sure I would trade my childhood of freedom and the outdoors and the senses for a childhood of being led by the hand past all the turners in the National Gallery. And also, he may have meant that anyone starting from deprivation is spared getting bored. You may not get a good start, but you may get up a considerable head of steam. Now, countless writers and artists have been vulnerable to the official culture, as vulnerable as the people of Matfield Green. Stegner comments on this. He says he's thinking of that bright girl from Nebraska, Willa Cather, who memorized those long passages from the Aeneid, spurning the dust of Red Cloud and Lincoln with her culture-bound feet. She tried, and her education encouraged her to be a good European. Nevertheless, she was a first-rate novelist only when she dealt with what she knew from Red Cloud and the things she had in place of all that.
Nebraska was what she was born to write. The rest of it was got up. Eventually, when education had won and nurture had conquered nature and she had recognized Red Cloud as a vulgar little hold, she embraced the foreign tradition totally and ended up by being neither quite a good American nor quite a true European nor quite a whole artist. Now it seems that we still blunt ourselves with the likes of learning long passages from the Aeneid while waiting to shake from us the dust of red cloud or matte field green. The extractive economy cares for neither Virgil nor Mary Stewart, who wrote the poem that the women read at their collect. It lures just about all of us into its shopping centers on the edge of Lincoln or Wichita, Louisville or Lexington. And yet for us, the Aeneid is as essential to becoming native to the map field greens as the bow and arrow were to the Paleolithic Asians who walked here across the Bering Land Bridge of the Pleistocene. And our task is to build the cultural fortresses to protect our emerging nativeness. And they have to be strong enough to hold at bay the powers of consumerism. We have to be able to deal with the powers of greed and envy and pride. And we have to designate the shopping malls and the Walmarts for what they are, the modern cathedrals of secular materialism. And one of the most effective ways for this to come about would be for our universities to assume the awesome responsibility to both validate and educate those who want to be homecomers, who want to go home. Then we can hope for a resurrection of the likes of Mrs. Florence Johnson and her women friends who took their collect seriously. Unless we can validate and promote the sort of cultural information in the making that the New Century Club featured, we're doomed. An entire club program devoted to coping with the heat of August is being native to a place. That club was more than a support group. It was cultural information in the making keyed to place. The alternative, one might suggest, is air conditioning. Not only yielding greenhouse gases, but contributing to global warming and the ozone hole as well. And if powered with nuclear power to future Chernobyls. As I see it, it is primarily a problem of rich cultural information as our leading edge, or it is technology as our leading edge. And if it's a program devoted to coping with the heat, we have a chance. But if it's an exercise in human cleverness along the technological realm as the primary focus, then we've had it. So becoming native to this place means that we creatures have to work to make everything from our domestic livestock to our uh, domesticated plants native too. And this is a very long journey. Well, finally, I come back to 1542. To Coronado and those 30 or so avarice-driven adventurers who made the side trip northward by the needle from the plains of Texas toward the land of Quivera, where they had been told by their guide, a native Indian slave, that there was gold. And when it was clear there was no gold, you remember, Coronado allowed this native of the land that would become Kansas to be strangled with a rope twisted about a stick. And so we have to ask, what was his offense? He had told a series of lies to men made gullible by greed. He was no fool and he must have known the risk, but he did it anyway and he did it for one reason. He was homesick. Because he was a slave, the lure of gold was his ticket home. He thought he could outwit them in the end, but he failed. He was not cunning enough to overcome the power of conquest. 
the homecomer of today still confronts that power. I thank you. I think I can presume to tie it all together. Um, what I can do is, is quote somebody and then elaborate briefly on it. Aldo Leopold said, when those who were frustrated about the loss of wild things, destruction of natural ecosystems, uh, people said, what we need is more education. And he had come to terms with this many times. Uh, and you can almost see the labor in his sentence as he writes. But is it the volume of education which needs stepping up? Is there not something missing in the content as well? something which will change our loyalties and affections. And as I heard the talks today, I kept ask, asking Leopold's question to myself. Is there something here uh, among the three of us that will change our loyalties and affections? We don't know. But what we do know is that to be a good farmer, uh, there is one primary uh, prerequisite. A good farmer has to have sympathy. If you don't have sympathy uh, for your crops and for your livestock, you're not going to perceive what the needs are. Uh, and you're not going to care for them well. One thing we have found about the industrial approach to agriculture about the industrial approach to the management of our forests, about the industrial approach to the management of ecosystems all the way to Bacall, is that the industrial mind is a mind that has treated forests and lakes and farmland as commodities, as nothing but. Uh, and as commodities, put into an economic framework where the hard-headed realist uh, can deal with it with the graphs and the formulae. It is that kind of thinking that has caused forests to become board feet and streams to become acre feet. There's nothing wrong with board feet so long as they are a derivative of forest hood. There is nothing wrong with acre feet so long as it is a derivative of stream hood. And there is nothing wrong really in certain places with till agriculture even uh, so long as the agricultural product is a derivative of those who love the land and at the same time know how to keep it. So I come to end, I guess, with uh, Dante's uh, line as he ended Paradiso. Uh, not many people read uh, Paradise. They mostly read the Inferno and that's far more interesting. That's one reason. I mean, hell's always interested us more than heaven. Um, <laughs> Heaven's just a place where we all get our way. Uh, but in uh, the way Dante ended uh, Paradise was uh, to talk about what it all, what held it all together. The sun, the moon, the stars, everything. What held it all together was love. Now it sounds sappy, uh, but I'm, it interests me greatly about the Collider Project the uh, super collider down in Texas, you know, where they're going to have the ultimate wreck. Um, 
they're going to get things going in opposite directions and slam into one another at twice the speed of light uh, is, a, it seemed to me, a silly way to find out anything, but uh, it's the way it works, it seems, when we um, get into the ultimate of reductionism. But it would be a matter of great interest if at the moment that they had the ultimate wreck and found out what all those little parts were, if at that precise moment love disappeared from the world. Now, wouldn't that be the ultimate trap to find ourselves in? And then everything flies apart. Now, I don't think that will happen, but it's a science fiction fantasy I've had. Um, and uh, I couldn't resist uh, uh, passing it on. So, but I think it does inform us in a certain way that uh, before you can uh, take care of a particular place, uh, you, I mean, in order to take care of a place in a particular way, I should say, that sustains that place, it requires affection. And uh, the affection grows. And why we object to the bureaucratic mind is because the bureaucratic mind doesn't have the kind of perfect, uh, kind of affection that will save the forests in the way the person that uh, walks through them. And so I think we come back once again to what the ancients uh, considered the, the ultimate uh, of the demonic. Uh, and the ultimate of the demonic was uh, when you create an abstraction uh, without a particularity. Blake talked about it. Um, numerous writers have talked about it. And I think it's time for us to think in terms of uh, working on the minute particulars. And those minute particulars can be wor best worked on at very local and community levels. And that's what Small was, is Beautiful, in my view, was all about. Uh, if we don't uh, get busy at that, then I think it's going to be too late, and I think we should quit trying to figure out how to change everybody's mind and go to work on these minute particulars and work on the changing uh, of our own minds and the changing of our own habits and so forth. Well, how do you do it, given the trap that we're in? I think it's worthwhile to entertain um, uh, the need for a kind of quiet secession. Not a Jefferson Davis type secession, but a kind of a quiet secession. And it doesn't mean that we lose our eye to what's going on in the larger world at all. Uh, we, you gotta be, we gotta be as wise as serpents uh, about that. But where we, where we work, uh, we say thank you, we're just kind of doing this right here now, and uh, then that becomes the sort of example there are stages I think the environmentalist mind has gone through. One stage is how to have a soft landing. And as we work, we realize we ain't winning. And then the stage is, let's prepare something for the other side of the mountain. As the curves of population, resource depletion, environmental degradation go up, 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 there will be a peaking, and on the other side of the mountain, uh, there is a life. Gary Snyder at the end of Turtle Island described it, where he said, we will meet there. Until then, stay together, learn the flowers, and go rot light. And then there is the other, the other category, which appeals to me the most, which is, you do it because it's right. And that it will, as Wendell said, be an awful thing if we quit being human before we become extinct. And in any case, it's certainly worth a hell of a try because it's all positive development anyway. To hear more talks like this one and discover more than 30 years of Schumacher lectures, visit centerforneweconomics.org.
The Schumacher Center for New Economics Research Library houses the collections of E.F. Schumacher, Robert Swan, and other influential thinkers in the new economy movement. You can strengthen our mission by purchasing a copy of your favorite Schumacher lectures at centerforneweconomics.org slash order dash pamphlets. Our work is supported by listeners like you. You can donate to our cause at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate. This library and the Schumacher lectures capture powerful voices for economic reform. Voices with the strength to move and inspire. They frame and inform action, but are not themselves the action. At a time when our earth is in crisis and our communities face complex challenges, we are all charged with creating solutions. The Schumacher Center's applied work seeks to implement the principles described by these speakers within the context of the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. This work includes crafting innovative leases that share equity and improvements while holding land in community trust. Building Berkshires, a local currency designed to democratize monetary issue and keep money circulating in the region. And engaging citizens in supporting the development of regionally appropriate businesses, creating local jobs while retaining local ownership and control. You can support our work in a new economy by making a donation at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate. Or call us at 413 528 1737 to make an appointment to visit our research library and office at 140 Jug End Road, Great Barrington, Massachusetts.